0: Hey everybody! Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. Today's episode is 2020 Year in Review: Apocalypse Right Meow.
1: Right meow. Okay right meow. meow. Does Camila uh, so know what we're doing? Wait, real quick. Do you also, to-
2: if 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 we are introduced, like if I'm supposed to be part of this, shouldn't it be welcome to History Unloaded with Ashley, Danny, and Camila?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. But first off, Camila. Do you understand the meow joke? Like do you know? No, I
2: mean? don't actually. I meant to ask and then what, <laughs> the <laughs> Danny? Do you
1: know the meow joke?
0: I assume it's only our desire to reference super Troopers.
1: Um yes, it's super troopers. Yes. And I don't know. It's just I have a cat now, so meow.
0: You have a cat. It works. Whatever. It's fine.
1: Okay. So a year in review. It's 2020. It's almost over. Actually, I think when this podcast airs, it's gonna be 2021.
0: Yes, this should be. This
1: will be New, New Year's, Year's Eve. 21. So, like, so take a shot every time Party. we say meow, meow. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> it's New Year's Eve. Uh, it's New Year's
0: Eve. So, yeah, that's a good drinking game.
1: So, I think so. The episode we're going to air, we're going to do this setup kind of like when Danny blew us off to go hunting and Camila and I talked about hunting and then, like, we let the episode play. We're going to do that again. Um, and we're going to re air the Does the Government Hoard Too? Um, because this has been an unprecedented year for really new gun owners, and the in the country. And so I don't know, Camila, you are at the end of 2020. It has been crazy. Do you still want to buy a gun, or do you, have we changed your mind? Because like I feel like at the end of that episode, you were like, "No, nah, I'm good." No, I'm good. Also, though, you're no, I'm good.
2: I'm good. Oh, you can't hear me.
1: You're good. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you have a house in like a place in Montana where nobody else lives. So like, you're just,
2: well, my husband has guns. I don't. Um, I feel like you need to
1: explain what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you just said, but like our viewership probably needs to hear what you just Your said. Your
2: listenership. Um, <laughs> so I am married. I am nearly married, which is my okay. own version of married. So I call my partner, my husband, not my husband. <laughs> And my husband owns guns, but I do not have any desire to own or buy a gun.
1: Daddy, we have not done our jobs.
0: We we have not. Well, was that
2: what you were trying to do? I don't think so.
0: The only reason we started this podcast was to get Camila a gun. We the listenership doesn't matter. That was the only reason.
1: Hey, let's not end 2020 by losing everybody. All 10. Minutes. Oh, right.
0: You guys are important to us. Don't leave.
1: Don't leave us. Because then it's just although I do have
2: a taser. Does that
1: count?
0: Not really. No. Don't um,
1: lose me, bro. that's that's another year in review. Um, God, you guys remember it's that? interesting
0: that when we did the Does Government Hoard 2 episode, like if we're doing this as a year in review, when we did that episode, we recorded it at the end of March. It was, like, just when, like, the ammo and gun craze kicked in. Because I distinctly remember beginning of March, like, ammo was still in stock. Guns were still in stock. And people were starting to, like, hoard, like, grocery supplies. But also,
1: you couldn't find ammo then, meow.
0: Right. Right. Then meow. (laughs) (laughs) I could not find ammo because... But like early in March, I could and then like I went away for a weekend. And I was like, I was about to buy some because I was conscious of I was going to be shooting three gun this summer and I needed to stock up a little bit. And the weekend I put it off a week. And then when I came back, it was like out of stock everywhere. And now it's out of stock. And when it does come in stock, it's super high priced.
1: Yeah, the other day Lexi and I were walking around Capella's and I walked by and I was like, oh my God, there's still no ammo in the shell. So like, this is crazy. Also, I didn't look, but there were like a handful of boxes still available. And I was just kind of like, uh, oh, it'd be sad to be that company, right?
0: I remember not too long ago, I was looking at one of the big wholesalers and they had like some weird French ordnance revolver cartridge still in stock. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should get one of those so I can buy the ammo for it because <laughs> they have yeah. ammo and stuff.
2: So how does the supply chain of ammos work? Like, why? I guess I don't. I know like if this it's is ammos. Yeah.
1: No. Is um, like that like okay? I don't
2: know. I don't know the vocabulary of guns.
1: You can but... say whatever you want, but um. I like
2: but it. I just wonder, like, why is it still? Is it still? not available because people, when it comes out, like people are just buying it so quickly or is the supply system broken now
1: that they can't Uh, both To Um, because, Oh, sorry. You go ahead. You're not married to a person. That's the president of a ammo company. (laughs) I was just
0: going to give you my real life example of, I signed up for notifications for specific ammunition. I got the email and by the time I got the wet, like I got the email notice, this is in stock. We have like 50 cases of this. By the time I got to it, it was like gone. And it wasn't even one of the popular cartridges. It yeah. was in one specific 30 out six. And yeah, it was just gone.
1: So what's, so it's, it's both Camila. It's a little bit of both. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is um, there's, so there's the big ammo companies. Um, and one of them, you know, Got sold this year, uh, Remington. And so that one's kind of out of commission while they figure all that, you know, the new ownership and all that stuff. But um, what people don't realize is that a lot of the smaller like niche brand ammo does not make all of their parts. So uh, so like the smaller boutique ammo companies that aren't making all their points, parts, like so they make, make some of them, but maybe they don't make primers or maybe they don't make brass. They rely on the big box like companies for that. And those people are also trying to get out their supply. And so because there is so much supply or demand, sorry, because there's so much demand, you know, all of the companies are strapped, you know, to, you know, maxed out to capacity of making the ammo. And then it kind of trickles down of, you know, then there are companies that aren't making all their parts, but they maybe they assemble or they do other things. Um, and so they can't get the parts that they need to finish the ammo. So then they're out of stock. Um, So it's both. Um, It's both the demand is driving a lot of that, but then the actual manufacturing processes, like a lot of gun companies in the country, are driven by like a bunch, like, you know, four major companies. And so they're doing their best to get stuff out to everybody, but, you know, they also have to take care of their own product. And so it's just gotten. To be really, really difficult, and everyone's like super trying. It's just there's so much demand for the ammunition, and if you think about it, um, too, it's not just like this is not like a phenomenon for new, like you know. Yes, there are a lot more new gun owners, but when there are times of crises and when there are times of um, uncertainty, um, and you know, which we've had a lot of, not just pandemic-wise, but you know, with what happened this summer and now with the presidential election being stressful, you know, people are buying in case it's not there. Um, and the future and so it's like the toilet paper thing like you don't need 30 cases of toilet paper right now but they're worried it's not there it's not going to be there or not going to be legally available um you know in in the future and so they're just trying to get it all and i i feel like my guess is that new gun owners kind of got screwed out um of a lot of ammo this year because they don't know that you know trend with the gun world and so they may not have anticipated it i don't know so they may just yeah. have, a they may have just like a really big paperweight to throw at somebody. I don't, I don't know.
0: And I imagine like, it's probably weird to us. Like these prices aren't normal for like guns and ammo, but for some people that are just getting into it, this is like normal. Like they don't realize how, I mean, they probably do. Cause I'm sure the people at the gun shops are like telling them this is crazy right now, but, or other people that they might know and the guns are telling them it's crazy. But for like that initial get into it, like, Oh yeah, this is. 50 cents a round for 9 mil is like, yeah, that's average. That seems about right when it's way, way inflated. So I have a question for...
1: So real quick, the other thing that's unavailable to answer your question, sorry, Danny, I'm sorry, um, is that a lot of people reload their own ammunition too. So even that kind of stuff is out. So like they'll load their own. So like they get all the parts and they make it, you know, they buy it from somebody and they make it in there. And even that's, you know, been hard for people to get power. I picked a
0: terrible year to try and start reloading.
1: (laughs) Yes, you did.
0: I, I actually, at, earlier in this year, like I went and I started buying components because I was like, if I'm going to shoot my M1 in competition, like I should really tailor some ammo for it. And so I'm like, I think, I think 30 out six would be a good one to start reloading on. And I started buying up components when they were coming. And now it's just like, it's all gone. I think I could probably load maybe like 500 rounds with the supplies on hand and past that. I can't get anything.
1: Yeah. Um, Sorry. What but was I your- have questions
0: for you and Mark through you. So question one is, does Mark see this as like equivalent to better than or worse than some of the past runs on like ammo since he's been in the industry longer than either of us?
1: Yeah, I don't know. And he's currently out of state. (laughs) um for the day uh and and mark came from the gun world too so this is a new like ammo is you know production's new you know newish for him obviously Mm -hmm. he knew about ammo production before but so i don't know um i don't know if this year is unprecedented i think you know where you could look would probably be nssf because they've been keeping tabs on this oh
0: yeah they have been um i guess my second question is not is less of a question and well, I'll I'll ask it this way. So there will be a question. But manufacturers last time that there was a big run on, like they saw this huge increase in demand, and then the demand like went away really quickly. And they were all that's what we why we saw such bot like really inexpensive prices for a few years leading up to this in most things. Is there caution in the industry to do that again? Or are they like, no, this is gonna last a while? we were expanding because last time it seems like they expanded and got burnt and this time maybe they're hesitant to expand that's just an absurd observ- an yeah story. and
1: i i don't know um i only partially listen to my husband when he talks um <laughs> he's my husband if he was my husband maybe i'd listen to him <laughs> um is like i hate you
2: Good one, Ashley. Great one. I feel like Mark needs to listen to this episode.
1: My husband doesn't listen to our podcast. <laughs> this is big enough. Um, but yeah, so I don't know about that, but I do know that the the industry does get burned. You know, like a lot, not just the industry, the gun industry, but like all industries do that. Like they amp up. I mean, it's like what we talked about in our podcast, we're going to be, listening, your podcast episode, we're going to be listening to, you know, governments do that, you know, where they stock up for war and then the war ends and they're like, we have all this production capacity. What do we do? You know, and that's where like really cheap post war weapon surplus stuff comes out after the war. And then some companies don't survive because they can't come up with stuff. It's like Winchester waking figure skates. So, there. Well, I was able to tie that back into our episode.
0: We have. So, one of the reasons we know the M1 in 30 6 since I already referenced it, I'll reference it again, is because one Douglas MacArthur looked at the stockpiles of .30-06 when they're developing the Grand, and the original chambering was 276, a brand-new cartridge. And he said, I think we're good, right, Meow? We have plenty of .30-06 on hand, and told him to reconfigure the design, which they did. And so this iconic American service rifle is chambered for a cartridge, and at least partly that decision for that cartridge was driven by the amount of ammunition they had stockpiled At the end of world war one and it was left you know 20 years later
1: yeah so i think that's probably a good cue up to the episode because that's what we talk about is government hoarding as well as people hoarding um so i haven't listened to this episode since we aired it although although what what did i do hello what what are you you Uh (laughs) actually So what's funny is like I kept on trying to interrupt and then I'm not you actually listening. i on going.
2: <laughs> I I was just gonna say I feel like we need to inform our listeners on whether Danny um succeeded or not because we were talking about that all of that other episode and we mentioned it in this one as well and so
1: Camila, why do you have, why do you guys? Well, do no, that I today? think it will
2: be an I'll interesting lesson. I think I mean, people will. I think it will the be interesting. Twenty twenty. Exactly.
1: Um, Let's hear about Danny's great failure.
0: So yeah, (laughs) my failure as an elk hunter. Um, So yes, the other episode I did bail on Ashley and Camila to go hunting and it was a tight week schedule wise. So we just had to push forward with an episode and I haven't actually listened to you guys make fun of me yet, but I can listen to it now um, live. So I went out elk hunting and my wife went with me and we hiked up to an area where
1: Oh no, Danny, was that her in the picture? No. Okay. I was like, it didn't no, look like Carson. Um that would have been like just out of control.
0: So, there was a, there's this one particular area in my hunting area that was uh there's national forest and there's private land and the elk, this particular herd of elk that I've been watching kind of goes back and forth between them. And so talking to somebody that lived out there, they're like, they haven't been here for a couple of days. I think they went back up to the national forest area. They didn't say it like that, but I'm make, trying to make this make sense. So I was like, it's probably worth going exploring there. And I was really proud of myself for this too. Like I do have a small victory in my larger defeat. So we go out there, we get up. I have like, at that point, I think I was down to like the last three days of my tag. Uh, and I had been out. I've been out the day that we we're supposed to record the podcast, skipped a day and then went out three days in a row. And so on that second day in that sequence, we got up really early, went out to this area and by like nine 30 had run into the elk where I thought they might have gone to. So that was like super proud of myself. Cause I don't know what I'm doing hunting. I'm like, Hey, they were down here. They've probably moved up here. I bet if I go between those two, I might see them. And I did. And I'm like, super proud of that. So we see them. And like for 10 minutes, I mean, I mean we ran into them at probably like 150 yards away. Like we came around the side of a hill and they're just standing like eating and grazing. And they sort of look at us like they definitely know are there, but they're not sure what we are just yet. And I have like a small window to get up in position and make a shot. And there was a solid 10 minutes. I'm like, I did it. I'm going to get one. I'm so excited. This is awesome. And so I got up to a vantage point where I could get my rifle and, you know, make a nice steady shot, nice clean shot. And I could see part of the herd. And here's where I think I made my mistake. Instead of taking one right then, when I had sight on one, I was like, I want to get slightly better. I want to get a little bit more. So I moved back, got out of their line of sight, moved up a little, got to a better spot. And by in that, like little window right there, they started moving. And so I was up in position to watch them, and they're sort of moving away from me. You know, if we initially saw them at like 150 yards or so, by the time I was in the first shooting position, they're maybe like, I don't know, 200 starting to move. By the time I get into the second one, they're moving pretty good at like, you know, a little bit further. And I think by the time I like really settled in, you know, I was looking at a bull moving away at like 350 plus, which. For a lot of our listeners is probably a really reasonable shot but i wasn't super caught. he was quartering away pretty steeply and moving and he just wasn't settling down he was the last elk in the herd and he was like he popped over this hill and i was like well it's nine thirty. like we have time to track these things and of course many listeners are probably like oh there's your mistake I didn't know it at the time. So I go back to meet up with Kirsten cause I left my like pack down there and I'm like, I'm just going up this hill after him. Can you like follow up and I'll catch up with you in a minute. And we agree to a plan. And so I start tracking up the hill, trying to catch up to him and trying to get a vantage point. But every time I like crest a hill, there's just a higher hill behind that one. And so I never have a good sight line on him again. And I just like exhaust myself going up this hill. And I was trying to take a path that I thought would be sneaky so that I wouldn't spook him if they were on the other side. I should have just gone up like the footpath behind them so I could have moved faster and like maybe gotten a shot that way. You know, hindsight's 20 20 as we're talking about in our, in some of our, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: um, so yeah. And then the only other view after hiking about a mile more, the only other view a very steep, very steep stuff was probably like 650 yards and they were in some trees. Um, so I did not get my elk despite having one in my scope.
1: But you made the right choice, I think. If you weren't comfortable with it, then it's the right choice. I'm just really... And you don't don't shoot them up the pooper.
0: But here's here's the sad part.
1: I was just thinking while Danny was saying this, we should totally do a podcast on um, like super honest (laughs) hunting stories.
2: Yeah. I just think it's a good story for hunters. I don't know. My
0: one regret is my my biggest regret of the whole thing isn't necessarily that i didn't get an elk because i i do think like i wasn't comfortable i would have felt awful if i had just like gut shot the thing or done something other like to like leave a wounded animal out there that would have been awful so i'm happy about that my regret is that this tag is like a five to seven percent draw like the tag i had and if i had yeah in, in hindsight my mistake wasn't necessarily that day My mistake was not making more days before that to get out because like, you know, you need multiple days of hunting to get an elk successfully. And I was trying to do it in like bits and pieces, like over a weekend or this and that. And I should have just like said, nope, I'm blocking out a whole week or 10 days or whatever. And I'm going to go get this thing to take advantage of this once in a lifetime. Well, maybe not once in a lifetime, but a really low draw tag. And then it was over. And there's the other frustrating, the other slightly like jab is that there's still cow tags, like they're legal for a couple more days as of recording this podcast. And so like I still see people out there hunting and I'm just like Argh.
1: on the bright side though, you still have some of my elk.
0: Yep, I still have some of the elk that you gave me, which is awesome. And
1: it was the Yeah, one. and
0: it's very tasty. And I also, you know, I wanted to fill a freezer. So on that side, like I did have a a shot at a cow in that <laughs> herd.
1: A freezer. Like, so, <laughs> my yeah. freezer. I donated, like, basically my hunting life yeah. to Danny when I left.
0: A plus boss work, I will say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I my tag was good for any elk. And I had my, like, at one point I could have taken a cow in that, like, as that we were taking, like, when that, I got my first setup for a shot, I could have taken a cow. But then I saw the antlers for a bull, like, just over the edge. I was like, oh, I want to get eyes on that. And, you know, in the idea that I wanted to like hunt for the meat to provide for, you know, food for the next year, I should have taken that cow when I had the chance. Um, but I got ambitious and then didn't get anything. And I'm also slightly regretting it because now there's a place in town that'll tan hides for you. And I was like I was within two miles of the trailhead on a fairly easy trail. I, I was really surprised to see him there. And so I was like, in my mind, if I could, if I was in a position to take like you know the organ meat and the hide and all the extra bits. Like I was going to take everything and then have like a vest made or something. So that's my other disappointing factor. Is now I don't have an elk vest.
1: <laughs> I think you know what? I think that's probably the brightest spot of. Uh, of oh no!
0: I'm getting one. And I'm wearing a Patriots ball.
1: Oh yeah As long as you wear one of those things, what was called uh, a vest? No, the little the bolo tie. Weird tie thing. Bolo tie. No.
2: It's something else. Anyways, I think we should wrap up, but just wanted listeners to know what happened to
1: Danny's.
0: Yeah, you just wanted like a yes. That that was kind of harsh. That that was some hard. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Well, 2020 is over.
0: 2020 ended in
1: failure.
2: Get excited. 2020 ended in failure. (laughs) It will be better in 21.
1: All right, guys. Well, listen to what we thought about the pandemic and hoarding back when it started. We don't even know what we thought. And how wrong we look in hindsight. Have
2: fun. Happy New, Year. Yeah. <laughs> Happy
0: New Year. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Today we're going to be talking about guns in times of crises. Ashley, why would we be talking about that?
1: So right now, we're actually all in different states. We've got Camila, our producer in Montana, I'm in Arizona, and Danny is in Cody, Wyoming. And the reason for that is because of the global pandemic of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And so we're all kind of working from home, uh, except for Danny, who is living in the museum now. Um, But the reason that we thought this might be an interesting topic is because, you know, a uh, a lot of things you see in the news right now, people are talking about, going out and buying toilet paper and there's all kinds of jokes about that and buying food but one of the other things that I've seen a bunch on social media is people talking about purchasing firearms and purchasing ammunition and my husband being an ammo salesman I know that that's you know the ammo sales are through the roof right now and there's also a lot of first-time gun buyers that, that's occurring right now and Danny and I were kind of chatting offline about the fact that you know this isn't the first time that firearms and ammunition have played a role in a global crisis uh, so we thought maybe we we would talk more broadly about, you know, when, you know, the world is going to war or there's something that's happening, you know, what goes on in the gun world, um, and with individuals. And you can kind of trace that throughout history because it's kind of similar.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I was, I sort of, you sort of took it along like domestic civilian issues that this has cropped up before in. And I thought of some, you know, military, um, you know, mentioned like when we were talking about this beforehand mentioned world war one is a big one. Um, And then thinking about it some more, I think the U.S. Civil War is another example of like firearms manufacturing um, around the world was heavily impacted by that. And, you know, it's a crisis for the United States. um, But then the Enfield factory in England is building like almost a million Enfield rifles to send over to the U.S. So there's lots of sort of examples of when, um, even if it's just a single country hit with a crisis of, it really impacting having an international impact in to firearms.
1: Yeah. Well, and if you think about in World War I, I mean, we've talked a lot about how like basically as the war's uh, ramping up that like none of the companies are really prepared um, with more modern guns for the war. And then there's this massive escalation in, you know, global arms manufacturing. America plays a huge role in that before we even engage in the war ourselves. And it's interesting to me. And I have a question for you because so you get this massive influx in production and even opening up other factories so that you can build to the quantity that you would need in, in a time of, you know, global war. And then after the war, we see, you know, a lot of bankruptcy, a lot of issues, um, with trying to maintain production once you've elevated the numbers and then companies getting creative and going outside of their comfort zone and making all kinds of things like Winchester did with figure skates and rollerblades and all that stuff. But my question, because we've talked about that before, is do you think that in these times uh, these times of global crisis where we might be either shopping more or you know making more, producing more to fulfill a need, does that actually inspire ingenuity or does it stifle it in the long run?
0: Um, I think it inspires it because, um, you know, look at like going back to the episode that we keep talking about that we never actually released.
1: <laughs> that's going to go down. If this podcast is popular, that's going to go down as like the secret episode. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, when World War Two breaks out.
2: look for it. Sorry. What's time. that?
1: What's that? Camila, Camila, like. <laughs> Camila like five years from now when she hates us is going to be like ha, ha, ha submit and like release it to the world
0: <laughs> for sure right, anyways anyways, anyways. <laughs> anyways um, yeah so like when World War II breaks out uh, you know the US is sort of they see it coming so they're a little bit prepared but you know Winchester essentially invents the M1 carbine from you know no working prototype um, to winning the contract to build build these for the army in just a couple of months, like the whole time frame is just a crazy time frame by peacetime standards. Um, you know, so there's that sort of expediency. You know, if you look back to like the Civil War, um, you know, before the Civil War, the U.S. was really slow about experimenting with any kind of breech loading or repeating firearm. Uh, And then the Civil War breaks out and all these ideas that had been shelved by the Ordnance Department um, suddenly are on the table because the Northern Army just needs guns of any kind, whether they work or not. And, you know, some of the designs don't, you know, there are some really poor designs that get adopted, but there's also some really great designs that might not have gone anywhere had it not been for the conflict. So in that sense, I think there is some um, innovation when you're looking at that sort of war as a crisis of you know, engineering or supply or something like that.
1: Well, see, and I think like, I, I agree with you in, in that respect. But the one thing that I would disagree with is, you know, we get a lot of short-term ingenuity, but then it stifles again as soon as the conflict is over. And, you know, hopefully, maybe I'm being a little bit too, like, naive, but it would be nice to not need a crisis in order to have development. And that's just kind of across the board. So I don't know. I I might say that in the short term, it shows a lot of ingenuity and engineering, and we get a lot of really interesting inventions that have real-world applications beyond the military and the civilian market and the sporting market and the target shooting market. But I also think that then it stops, and like we don't keep pushing forward. And I would say that in the long run, that would probably... I don't know, hurt us? Because what if we didn't have another crisis? I mean, that'd be awesome. You know, would we just kind of all rest on our laurels eating potato chips like we might be doing right now?
0: Well, I don't know when potato chips were invented, so I don't know if Civil War designers could eat those.
1: (laughs) They were eating hardtack.
0: Hardtack. Just leftover hardtack.
1: (laughs) Breaking their teeth left and right. (laughs) That's a good
0: reference because, like, there was a lot of leftover hardtack, I'm sure, at the end of the war. But, like, the design did go in spurts. And then at the end of the Civil War— the U S army, like instead of just sort of staying at the same levels, like, Nope, we're going back to 25,000 soldiers, everybody go home. And then they sold off all the extra rifles. Like, and so then civilian manufacturers, like could not compete with surplus firearms on the market, because if you can go buy an old musket for $3, why would you buy a Winchester for 30 or $40? Um, especially when it's not, you know, it has, it's new. It's kind of an, Yeah. Untested isn't necessarily the right word, but you know, you kind of get where I'm going. Is
1: I can tell you're trying very hard not to say it's not, it's every bit as good as the military guns.
0: (laughs) You know, it's
1: (sighs) also, I'm going to interject for a second because for a solid minute of that explanation, I really thought we were still talking about hard deck.
0: I mean, it was true. Like, the U.S. Army did sell a ton of its surplus, like, regular goods, not just guns. So I'm sure there was some cases of hardtack (laughs) going out, too.
1: Would they have then used that for construction projects?
0: I mean, I guess they could have.
1: (laughs) Anyways, why buy a $30 Winchester when you can have a $6 Springfield, basically?
0: It's one of those things where, like, yeah, the Winchester is in, like, absolute terms is probably a better gun for you if you're heading out west but the springfield musket or rifle will probably do most of what you need for a real fraction of the cost and you know i think that was a real world decision that a lot of people faced in the 1860s and 70s
1: yeah well you know it's it's interesting to me because like so you've got like kind of how the the arms industry reacts in all sorts of situations. I mean, right now, um, you know, you can't get a lot of stuff because everyone's sold out because nobody anticipated something like this. Uh, but I'm also interested in like, because I mean, if you think about it, if we go back to the Second Amendment and the conversation about civilian, you know, civilians getting together and militias, you know, I'm kind of also curious about, um, the it, it, is there a historical response to civilian reaction to, uh, you know, two things that are going on in the world. Uh, You know, the one thing that I can think of, and this isn't necessarily like A crisis in terms of like a pandemic or a war, but like look at what happens um, after the after World War II into the 1960s with the civil rights movement and trying for that you know for a group of people to try to you know get equal rights um, in the country, and so it's a little bit different, but at the same time, I mean a lot of those people start arming up as well. So you've got um, you know you've got armed radical activists that are deciding to arm themselves because they don't trust you know the They know that they need to protect themselves, and so you get all of these pamphlets. And like Berkeley, California, they produce a pamphlet called "The uh, Self Defense: Handguns and Self Defense for Radicals, Revolutionaries, and Easy Riders." And then there are other pamphlets that pop up, done by different groups of people um, that are trying to fight for you know kind of their rights, and they do use firearms as both a metaphor and they use firearms in pra- in the practical sense. And they actively purchase, but then they also actively train in order to protect themselves, uh, from, you know, a, a danger. And I, th- I just think it's kind of interesting the the civilian human res- like individual response to it throughout history. I'm trying to think of a earlier example, other than the sixties, I'm sure there are.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are too. And, but it's, it's kind of interesting as we're talking this out, you know, we're a little bit off of like what we initially said we were going to go, but it's like, we have three sort of
1: categories,
0: agree to right? <laughs> we, uh, you know, we're, we've talked about sort of like the military national level response to like, you know, war as a crisis. And then we're talking about sort of, you know, what we're witnessing right now is almost a, it's like a really short term, at least so far, um, you know, people responding to what's been happening over a few weeks uh, or a few months. And then what you're talking about is something like people's response to, a longer term crisis that's happening Mm -hmm. over many decades
1: or set or or longer than that,
0: (laughs) you know, there's generational struggle there, but, you know, for the individual, it might be, you know, a few years or a few decades. Um, you know, it's almost, it's like three kind of categories, I guess.
1: Yeah. But it's interesting that like all three of those categories ha- involve, you know, stocking up, arming up, training up, you know, on multiple levels, which is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, and and I think there's parallels even though they're really different in scope, you know. Yeah. Um I made the reference when we like when we were first starting to talk about this is like, you know, people are referencing the fact that everybody's going out to their gun shop or going online to buy up ammo and guns and whatever and that's its own interesting phenomenon but isn't that really similar to how like allied governments in world war one like oh crap we don't have enough guns to fight this huge multinational war now uh hey usa you're the last store that's open let's buy (laughs) everything you have
1: I like that <laughs> that is a, a good analogy and I'm proud of you for bringing it back to that text message conversation we had before this <laughs> before this podcast but it's true uh, you know because there is that kind of you know crossover in terms of reaction because even the military is full of individuals and humans and if humans in their personal lives are going to respond that way I mean they're going to respond that way strategically in times of war which makes a ton of sense
0: well and to take it one step further and this might be too much of a strategy but you know for you know like looking at say the British government or the US government right before the World Wars you know and as you said there's this impetus during the conflict for things to innovate and happen but then after the conflicts over it goes away and before the conflict you know nobody's really that interested you might get a few people kind of Street corner profits forecasting something really bad but you know, that doesn't mean that Congress is going to appropriate enough money to stockpile the 2 million rifles it needs for World War One. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, like, if you're looking at people now, like, everybody can look and say, like, oh, these people should have gone out ahead of time and, you know, they should have bought a a personal defense handgun and gotten training on it and bought enough ammo to last them for a while just in case something like this happened. But, you know, we as individuals, you know, not everybody has that luxury of being able to sort of forecast that out and make that a part of their, but you know, their day to day concerns last year uh, are really different from right now. And so what they, you know, the crises they might've had to face in their household didn't necessarily involve. Yeah. You know what, probably a year from now, I bet I'll need 500 (laughs) rounds of nine millimeter
1: which is actually a true statement because Danny has started uh, shooting more competitively and what was that? You said like a couple of weeks ago you were like oh, you know I could really go for some more 9mm and then, <laughs> now you like can't get me. And that wasn't even for a personal defense, that was for target shooting.
0: I was like, uh, you know what? Last month I have enough for right now, I'm probably good. <laughs> and then I looked this weekend I'm like, oh, that was dumb. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, and I mean the reality is is you can't anticipate you know things happening. I mean something like this is so unprecedented. I mean yeah, we've had global pandemics in the past, but it's so different now than it, that it than it has been or it at really seems. I'm not a I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not going to even pretend like I can understand the trends of historic diseases. But you know it's it's one of those things of the 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 thing that a lot of gun people preach of the preparedness, um, and then you know where I think a lot of people live their lives, which is just you know living their life and not really thinking about this kind of thing. And we see it happen time and time again throughout history. And so I don't know, I I don't, it, there's a lot of criticism that comes on to a lot of people that are trying to buy guns right now. And it's just kind of an interesting thing. And I think you make a good point about the luxury of, you know, <laughs> getting something ahead of time. It's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect situation, we could all sort of foresee like, all right, I need this much money in my bank account to survive, you know, to be able to buy food for this long, or I need this much, you know, non-perishable food to, and there's definitely some point to like, think about that kind of thing. But, you know, for a, a lot of us, for most of the time, it seems like a remote possibility. So for me, at least it's easy to see why that gets pushed on The back burner especially when you know a household or a person might only have limited financial resources
1: yeah you know sort
0: of like a peacetime government
1: well and even like for us you know we keep cash in the house I'm not telling you where. But we keep cash in the house. And then in the past couple of weeks, we had a couple of like expenses that were cash expenses. So we just used it and we didn't replenish it. And now the banks are out of money, you know? So, I mean, even people who, you know, have the resources and stuff, you know, things happen and you just kind of don't anticipate them. Um, I would love to know more about uh, maybe this is Ashley's homework while she's in lockdown at her house in Arizona it would be to learn more about public response and like, you know, institutional response to diseases throughout history, like smallpox, you know? Well, I mean, our response was kind of douchey, our response being the U.S., but I won't get into that.
0: Well, and you know, I mean, it's not to say that, like, firearms play a huge role in every, um, like, every crisis that there is. It's just you can see some of these where it's happened at different levels that it has become a topic. You know, this one, it's become a topic for this specific one. Um, You know, some of these things have passed where it's not a real... It hasn't been a big concern.
1: So Camila, I have a question for you. Are you going to buy a firearm now? No, I'm not going to buy a gun.
2: But why do you think people feel like they need a gun in these type of moments?
0: Well, I've been sort of paying attention to like stuff that gets said online. and, And, you know, people are, it seems like people suspect, you know, with when people are like buying out stores, you know, we saw that start to happen, and then people expect like, all right, as stores start to run out of stuff, then maybe people turn to looting. Like that's like the next step that people seem to be trying to anticipate,
1: which we've we've seen historically um, happen. So I think it's a you know a validated fear. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are like,
0: I need things are getting crazy. Maybe this will help me protect myself. Yeah, that and makes I, sense. I, I think that's yeah. the, thought, the train of thought that a lot of people um, are getting into, especially people that maybe aren't familiar with firearms or only have sort of a, you know, a standoff or tangential relationship with firearms. So far, you know, for a lot of people that are familiar, they've already thought about those sort of personal protection reasons for maybe owning a gun. But um, other people, are, I think that it's sort of new to them, are making that jump now.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's kind of an interesting thing because even though you know, it's it's an unpleasant circumstance and they may not continue to, um, you know, think about guns beyond once we're, you know, in the clear of this particular, you know, crisis and pandemic. You know, it, it'll be interesting to see, I'm interested to see how people who wanted to get a gun you know, during this time period kind of react post everything. I mean, do they you know, still own the gun? Do they put it in the safe with no ammo, you know, until the next thing? Do they actually go out and target shoot? You know, it'd be kind of interesting to see. But I do think it is also interesting and and this is not me trying to get into politics but this is just me talking about like kind of legislative history and the reality of the matter is is that there's been a lot of laws you know that have been passed in certain areas for certain reasons and I think it's in times like these when we actually start to see you know, how those laws go into effect and how they can adversely, you know, or correctly, uh, you know, affect the civilian population when people are trying to acquire these firearms. I just think it's really interesting, you know, and in some respects, you could probably argue, but they're also keeping the guns out of the hands of people that would be doing the looting, um, you know, versus the people who want to protect themselves from the looting. But it is kind of interesting to see because so many laws go on in the book that don't really impact the bulk of the population. And then something happens and it makes you think about the law that's been put in place and whether or not it's actually helping uh is it hurting is it doing a combination of the two i think it's kind of interesting
0: yeah and it's funny because like again going back to sort of observing from afar online like one of and again i I don't want to get into the politics of like waiting periods but that's one that like people that don't know anything about guns they're like going to a gun shop being told all right you got to wait three days seven days 10 days whatever it is um things that you know, those places decided was their standard during sort of normal times. Um, And people seem, you know, obviously the voters in those jurisdictions decided that's what was, you know, that was what they wanted. Um, But now they're faced with this situation where maybe that can be a detriment and somebody that would be perfectly legal to go buy the gun otherwise um, shows up and, you know, in the middle of a crisis like this, they're like, well, I don't want to wait 10 days. What do I do? And gun owners are like, uh, that's the rules.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I think like, you know, we've been talking for a long time on the, on all different types of crises with firearms. I think the moral of the story really is in all of these scenarios, is there a way that we can be less reactionary and, you know, set up, You know, preventative issues in the future. So, like in terms of innovation in any technology, you know, why do we wait for war to drive that innovation, or why do we wait for something bad to drive that innovation? And the same with laws. You know, why are we waiting? You know, till the laws are passed to to know exactly how they would affect people. And so, I think it's I think it's the uh, it's a tale as old as time. I feel like to some extent, because you always hear that. How can we not be reactionary? How can we not be reactionary? Well, maybe we should try now. Any day is as good as any.
0: Yeah, maybe any day is as good as any. But, you know, this we're talking like serious studies into the human psyche now that we are not qualified for. We
1: are not qualified, so we should just stop.
0: (laughs) I don't know. It's it's one of those things. Humans are in some ways kind of, I don't know if immediacy or reactionary is the, the right word, but we kind of have to deal with what's in front of us at a specific time. And if it's, you know, if it's... Summer 2019, and you're planning money for the family vacation and how that's going to work, you know, a firearm to protect your stack of toilet papers, maybe not top of the list.
1: <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> we had to make a TP reference. We had to. We had to. Well, I. So I guess to wrap this up, I just hope that everybody stays healthy and stays safe and stays sane during the quarantine. Danny's gonna be pretty much alone in the museum for a couple of weeks. So I told him that if he doesn't have a tinfoil hat on our next uh, video chat, I'm gonna be really sad. And I've got this cabinet of whiskey behind me that you can't see on the podcast, but I'ma make some use of that.
0: Yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it and enjoyed our little thought experiment. And we'll uh, catch you next time.
1: Bye.